0: It to you, okay, uh, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life, uh, the one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die, do you believe this, amen, okay, sorry about that, uh, so, you know, I've actually, uh, if you can believe it, I've actually been pastoring uh, in one form or another for over 20 years now, uh, shocking, I know. Uh, especially considering I don't look a day over thirty. Um, I'll assume by the lack of laughter that you agree with me. Uh, anyway, uh, over those twenty years, naturally, uh, I've been to and I've been in charge of a lot of different types of worship services, spanning pretty much the whole spectrum. You know, uh, baptisms, right? Regular Sundays, revivals, and retreats, and things like that. Well, over the years, uh, you know, doing all this, I've noticed, a, I've noticed a pattern. Okay. Besides Easter, uh, the only other times pastors tend to focus on the resurrection is when? At funerals, right? You guys probably have noticed this as well. And that makes sense, of course, right? The resurrection is about being raised to life after dying, and it's a powerful hope. It's a powerful hope for those of us who've lost loved ones. So emphasizing the resurrection on the occasion of death at funerals is natural. Uh, And if it's done appropriately, uh, it can actually be very helpful. Jesus, in fact, in today's text, seems to be doing exactly that, right? So the text that we read today, the, the correct one, uh, we, it's actually just a couple of verses taken from a much longer account uh, about a man, man named Lazarus, okay? And, and in that account, uh, some of you guys might be familiar with it, Lazarus, who also happens to be a very close friend of Jesus, he dies, okay? And, and Jesus, naturally, he, he comes to You know, visit the family after he dies. Well, as Jesus is approaching their home, right, if you read that longer account, Martha, uh, one of Lazarus' sisters, she comes out to confront him on the road. She doesn't wait for him. She goes out and meets him on the road, right? And when she meets him, this is what she says. She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And she says that. That's the first thing she says to Jesus on the road. Uh, And when Jesus hears that, uh, he responds to Martha. And he responds by reminding her that her brother Lazarus will rise again. Okay, so it seems like Jesus is doing what I just said, right? Bringing up the resurrection on the occasion of death, right? This is actually not an uncommon thing for Jews to say at the time. You know, a lot of Jews actually believed uh, that at at the end of human history, they were all going to be raised again in what they believed that would be a general resurrection of the population. So if you lost someone... Uh, some Jews would try to comfort you by saying, you know, hey, you know, uh, you're going to see them again. Okay? And they'd be referring to that final resurrection at the end of time. Now, of course, you know, that could come across like cold comfort a little bit, right? Because, if you have, because actually you have, you have to wait to the end of history to see them again. It doesn't seem very comforting. Uh, but I guess it really depends on how, how you say it and, and how you deliver it. Anyway, Martha knows this. Right? Because she's a Jew, okay? which is why she replies to Jesus. If you read the text, she replies, yes, I know he will rise again in the resurrection and the last thing. Now, I don't know if she said it like that, but I, I assume that she may have rolled her eyes a little bit. But when she says this, Jesus replies to her again, but this time he says something astonishing. Okay? What he says is, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. You guys read that in the text, right? I am the resurrection and the life. Now, why does he say that? He says that because he's trying to communicate something to Martha, okay? And what he's trying to communicate to her is that the resurrection is not some distant future reality. No, it's a present reality that she can experience and leverage right now in the person of Jesus. See, when Martha says to Jesus... Right? Yes, you know, I know my brother will rise again on the last day. She's focused on later. Right? The last day, which to which in her mind is irrelevant to today. The resurrection to Martha has no bearing in her life right now. But when Jesus says that he is the resurrection and the life, what he's saying to Martha is this. This is what he's saying. He's saying, Martha, open your eyes. Don't look into the distant future, okay? You need to look at me. I, the one standing before you right now, this very moment, I am the author of life and I am the source and power behind the resurrection. It all flows from me. When you have me, you don't access the resurrection later. You can access its power right now in the present through me. Now, just think for a moment about what Jesus is saying here, right? This is not some vague spiritual teaching that we can just kind of gloss over. You know, often when we read the Bible, we read something nice, and we're like, oh, that's nice, right? You see these quotes of Scripture on Instagram. Oh, that's, that's so nice, and we just kind of, right? You can't do that with what Jesus says here. Jesus here is making a claim about the fundamental nature of reality. If you truly understand what he's saying, It will revolutionize your entire approach to life. Let me quote to you uh, from a scholar. Her name is Gail O'Day. She's actually a very highly respected New Testament scholar. She has degrees from Brown, Harvard, Emory, and she's a specialist in the book of John, which is the book that we're looking at today. This is what she says, if if we can throw the next quote up. She says, the magnitude of this claim that Jesus says about himself cannot be overstated. Because it announces that God's power over life and death, a central belief of the Old Testament God, is now shared with Jesus. Do you guys see that? By saying that he is the resurrection and the life, Jesus is proclaiming that in himself resides the very power and authority of God. In short, Jesus is saying that he is God. And look how he continues in the next part of the the scripture. If we can throw the next slide up there. He says this. He continues, the one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Notice, he doesn't say the one who believes in God. He doesn't say that. No, he says the one who believes in me. You know, if he was just an ordinary human being saying this, right, we would lock him up. Right? We throw him into an insane asylum. Right? In fact, that's what they did. They crucified Jesus because Jesus throughout his life made claims to divinity. Look, no one at that time believed the Messiah was going to be divine was going to be a divine person, let alone being God himself. Okay? No one believed that. Claiming to be the Messiah is not what God Jesus killed. A lot of people mistakenly believe that. Claiming to be the Messiah is not what God Jesus killed. What God Jesus killed was his claim to be something more, namely God, which was blasphemous. And in the eyes of the Jews, it was worthy of death. So they killed him. Okay? But what do we know happens in history? What do we know? Jesus resurrects, okay? Not at the end of time, in the general resurrection, but in the middle of history, before that final resurrection. That's not something anybody expected at the time. And frankly, this, you know, Jesus rising again, this really is the only explanation that can explain why so many Jews started worshiping Jesus as God. Look, you know the Jews at the time, they had these dietary laws. You guys might be familiar with that. Uh, and they, they guarded those dietary laws with zealously, right, with conviction to think that they would be any less zealous about guarding their most cherished belief, which is that God is one. To believe that they would not be as zealous about that, even more zealous about that, is historically ridiculous. Worshiping a person as God was blasphemy, of the highest possible order. The Jews did not have a concept of the Trinity. So saying that Jesus was God and worshiping him as God would have been considered blasphemy, worthy of death. But when Jesus resurrects in the middle of history, they saw a power and an authority that they knew could only come from God himself. The resurrection validated Jesus' claims about himself. And this is why people who were so resistant to worshiping a person as God, that's why they started worshiping Jesus literally overnight. Not decades later, not centuries later. A lot of people think, oh, you know, Jesus became God centuries later. No, this happened overnight. Overnight, they gave up their most cherished belief that God is one, and they started worshiping Jesus. Jesus. That is utterly miraculous, historically speaking. Michael Lycona, he's one of the most respected and uh, foremost scholars on the historiography of the resurrection. This is what he says. Can we throw the next slide up there? There is amazement over the devotion of the earliest Christians toward Jesus, which was to such an extent that they felt obligated to worship him. How did this devotion come about, especially when it would certainly seem blasphemous to do so? There are no hints of any Jews who believe the Messiah was divine. What then was a catalyst uh, of such devotion to Jesus? This is regarded as perhaps the most puzzling and notable feature of the earliest Christian treatment of the figure of Jesus. That's Michael Lycona. And then in his 700-page book, The Resurrection of Jesus, he goes on. And he proves the case that the most historically plausible explanation for all of this, all of this worship of Jesus, is that Jesus, who claimed to be divine, did in fact rise again. Uh, N.T. Wright, uh, he's also one of the most respected biblical scholars alive today. You know, I know some of you may have read some of his popular stuff, but if you really want to see the meat of his expertise and his argument, you really need to read some of his scholarly stuff. Anyway, he wrote his massive scholarly treatment titled The Resurrection of the Son of God, which is over 700 pages long, and he agrees with Michael Lycona, and this is what he writes. This is a bit of a long quote, but I ask you guys just to turn on your thinking caps for a second and just follow along because it's really... Pretty powerful stuff he says here. Okay, if we can throw the next slide up there. The early Christians did not invent the empty tomb and the meetings or sightings of the risen Jesus in order to explain a faith they already had. They developed that faith because of the occurrence and convergence of those of these two phenomena. Nobody was expecting this kind of thing. No kind of conversion experience would have generated such ideas. Nobody would have invented it, no matter how guilty or how forgiven they felt, no matter how many hours they poured over the scriptures. To suggest otherwise is to stop doing history and to enter into a fantasy world of our own, a new cognitive dissonance in which the relentless modernist Desperately worried that the post-Enlightenment worldview seems in imminent danger of collapse, devises strategies for shoring it up nevertheless. In terms of the kind of proof which historians normally accept, the case we have presented that the tomb plus experiences combination is what generated early Christian belief is as watertight as one is likely to find. That's a mouthful, Uh, and he makes a lot of claims there. But all of those claims, he backs up. You know, I've uh, personally done a lot of study in this area. I've struggled with my faith in college. I'm like, is this stuff real? I really dove headlong into this and studied it for years. And let me tell you something. I'm not sure if you know this, but the resurrection of Jesus is historically supported to such an extent that to deny it is actually extremely difficult to do on the basis of history. Friends, the resurrection is not just some doctrine that we take on blind faith. A lot of people think that faith is something that we just kind of leap into the dark. That's not what faith is, especially the resurrection. The resurrection is anchored in some of the best historical information that we have. In fact, I've read skeptical scholars. I I read this one guy. He's an atheist. His name is Michael Ruse. Uh, you know, he just doesn't believe in God, but at one point he says, when I examine the evidence for the resurrection, I don't believe the resurrection happened, but something must have happened to explain why the disciples changed. So he doesn't believe in the resurrection simply out of the, because he believes in naturalism, miracles can't happen, and things like that, but when he looks at the evidence, it's so compelling that he's like, I don't believe it's the resurrection, but something must have happened. That's how strong the evidence is. In fact, a lot of skeptical scholars, even though they don't believe in the resurrection, they'll say that it's such strong evidence that I have to believe something amazing must have happened. I just don't believe it's a resurrection, even though all the evidence points to the fact that it's a resurrection. You know, to deny the resurrection flies in the face of a massive historical edifice that has yet to be knocked down in nearly two millennia. The resurrection has been studied and scrutinized by scholars more than any other event in the history of humankind. And still, it stands with such strong historical integrity that people flock to it and find faith and hope in it because it really happened. Okay? And, you know, when I actually, I'm kind of a geek. I think a lot about this stuff. When I think about this, I find it pretty ironic because those who claim the resurrection to be a myth They're in the enterprise of turning into myth something that is actually true. I find it to be very, very ironic and telling. Okay. So in history, Jesus proves that he is in fact God. Okay? So when he says that he's a resurrection life, we need to take him seriously. Right? Now... When we continue in today's text, Jesus says what? He says, the one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. What Jesus is saying is this. He's saying, if you believe in me, death no longer has power over you. Yes, you will physically die, right? Yes, all of us physically die. But if you have Jesus, that death, is not the end. So that death no longer has the crushing existence-ending sting that it used to have. And because it's lost its sting, the dread of death no longer has the reality-defining power over your life that it used to have. Now, what I mean by that, let me show you. See, when Martha approaches Jesus, right? She's allowing the reality of death dictate the terms of her evaluation of Jesus and her experience uh, of life. Okay, She comes to Jesus. Let me explain what I mean by that. She comes to Jesus and throws death into his face. She says, you could have stopped this, Jesus, but now my brother's gone and nothing can be done. You let death win. And then later, if you go on in the story, when Jesus asks for them to remove the stone from Lazarus' tomb, Martha says this to Jesus. These are her exact words. She says, Jesus, the body's been decomposing for four months. It's going to smell. See, Martha is looking at Jesus and life through the eyes of death. She's letting the power and the fear and the reality of death control her experience of life rather than letting Jesus control her experience of life and death. The reality of death still has significant power over Martha. What Jesus is telling her in in what we read today is this. He's saying, Martha, when you have me, you no longer have to fear death and let it control you like this. Because I have authority and power over it. And I am for you. I am for you. Don't let death dictate your vision. Let me. Gail O'Day, Next slide. She says this. As a resurrection and a life, Jesus defeats death in the future and in the present. Jesus' words offer a vision of life to the believer in which his or her days do not need to be reckoned by the inevitable power of death, but instead by the irrevocable promise of life with God. I love how Stanley Harawas, a great American theologian, says it. He says, quote, Jesus has made it possible to live unafraid. has made it possible to live unafraid now this doesn't mean we shouldn't be sad when we lose loved ones a lot of people mistakenly believe that someone dies don't be sad celebrate no okay that's not what Jesus in fact later on in uh, in Lazarus's story literally just a few verses later Jesus actually weeps over Lazarus's death right the shortest verse in scripture Jesus wept right now if you think about that that's a little bit strange And it's strange because if you know the story, you know that Jesus is going to raise Lazarus in just a few minutes. So if Jesus knows that he's going to do that, why is he weeping? That's kind of weird. Well, Tim Keller says it well. He says the reason why Jesus weeps, despite the fact that he knows he's going to raise Lazarus again in five minutes, is because Jesus' love is perfect. You see, it doesn't matter if he's going to be better in five minutes. Jesus' love is so perfect that he feels the tragedy of the moment. He feels the horror of losing a friend or a loved one to death, and he genuinely mourns. The fact that death even touches any of us breaks God's heart. So when people die, we should mourn and we should grieve, but that's very different from letting death control your life. That's very different. Yes, grieve, mourn, weep, but never let death dictate and determine ultimately how you live your life. It no longer has that power over you. Now, what am I trying to say through all of this? What I'm trying to say is that the resurrection is not relevant only on Easter or at funerals or at the end of time, like Martha thought. The reality of the resurrection should permeate all of life, all of your life. It should impact all that you do now. George Bird. she's another New Testament scholar, he says this, next slide. He says, if Jesus is life, then those who believe in him will enjoy the confidence and power over death known by him. They will have a life now and do not have to wait to the end of human time in history in order to enjoy the benefits of Jesus' power. Jesus brings a present reality to our victory over death. It is one thing to say that we are saved, but quite another to understand what it means to possess life now in the present. See, uh, whether you realize it or not, uh, we are all, every single one of us in here, in one form or another, we are all letting death dictate the terms of our living. In one form or another, all of us are letting death dictate the terms of our living. For example, why do we hoard money and struggle with greed? Because we're afraid of the forces of death. What if something happens? What if there isn't enough money for me and my family in the future? I need this for me, so I'm safe, so I'm having fun, so I look good. Not to have those things is a kind of death for us. Why do we gossip and slander? Because we want to shore ourselves up. For many of us, if we don't feel better than other people, if other people look like they're having better lives than us when we look at Instagram, right, then we don't feel good about ourselves. And we, we don't feel, we, we, yeah, we just don't feel like we're worth living. Something inside of us, when we, when we don't feel good about ourselves because we don't feel better than other people, Something in us feels like it's dying, and so we tear people down. Why, why don't we forgive? Why do we have such a hard time forgiving? Because someone has hurt us. They have made us experience a sort of death in our lives. Right? Our feelings were hurt, maybe, or diminished. Our reputation was tarnished. Or maybe something worse. Something in us has died because of them, and we want them not to be released from that. And in fact, we want them to experience that death and return in some form. Why do many of us sit on the Amazon website for hours ordering things? One-click purchase, right? Because at the very bottom of it, it makes us feel alive. It fills that void, right? We feel, when you feel empty, that's a sort of death, Right? And when you buy things you 're just covering it up. you know that void that you feel sometimes you 're like watching Netflix is like, "What does my life mean?" right It means nothing right That void the reason why we hate it so much is because it feels like an obliteration of our existence and our meaning that 's death. We live so much of our lives trying to flee from death and death like things. okay We live so much of our life doing that, and that 's a lost cause because. Death is not only inevitable, but, it for, but its forces, death forces, death's forces are everywhere. If you live running from death, it will color everything you do. It will, in fact, control you, which is what you see in the examples that I just listed. And what's tragic is that as you build your life around fleeing from death and fleeing from death-like experiences so that you yourself can have more life, you will actually be the source of even more death To those around you and to yourself. Think about it. When you hoard things, right? When you slander people, when you refuse to forgive, you are not only poisoning the world, you are actually poisoning yourself. I mean, look at greedy people, look at gossip mongers, look at unforgiving people. They're like, yeah, I gotta protect myself. I gotta live, you know, I I gotta fight against these death forces in my life. Do they look like they're growing? and flourishing and experiencing more life and joy in their lives by doing that? No, when you look at their lives, you see their lives diminishing. They're becoming smaller. They're becoming less human. That's death at work in their lives. In fleeing death, ironically, they are perpetuating it even more in their lives and in the lives of those around them. But if you have life in God, a life that is secured for eternity and accessible now in Jesus. And when you have a love like that, death no longer has to control you or impact your life like this. Your eternal security in God and in his love and your access to this God who defeated death, it frees you to live more fully than those living, fleeing from death. Why? Because those fleeing from death are ultimately being controlled by it, whereas you, the constraints of death, have been removed. Think about it this way, right? Think if you lived in a very oppressive, totalitarian country, okay? Anytime you do anything, you're always going to be looking over your shoulder, right, in those countries. Does that sound like Freedom? Do you think you can live freely or fully in that kind of environment? Do you think you will reach the fullness of your potential in a place like that? No. Well, that's what it's like living, fleeing from death. We're always trying to grasp more for ourselves because we're always looking over our shoulders, afraid of losing for ourselves. The forces of death are everywhere. Living like that is not freedom. That's living in a box surrounded by death. But if you have Jesus the resurrection and the life, death is defeated. And you can break out of that box and live fully and freely as you were meant to live. Now, in all this, I'm not saying don't get life insurance. (laughs) I'm not saying don't plan for retirement or don't get your annual physical because we no longer fear death, right? I'm not saying that. Christians should be wise and prudent. We should be good stewards. We should care for our family. The Bible actually says that, okay? But being those things is not the same thing as being controlled by fear and insecurity and death. I know many Christians who are very wise and very prudent, but they still live lives of radical abandon for Jesus, oftentimes at loss to themselves because they know their security is ultimately in him. Also, I'm not saying you can't feel afraid, I know plenty of faithful Christians who still feel afraid for themselves. We live in a scary world at times. I know many Christians who are scared of death. But despite feeling those things, they don't live by it. They don't let it control them. They might be afraid, but they trust Jesus. And so they live life taking him at his word. They put one foot in front of the other. And even though they feel afraid, they refuse to let it have power over the way they live. That's what faith and courage is. Brothers and sisters, the resurrection has profound implications not only at the time of death, but also for the life we live right now. We have to let the resurrection defang all the forces of death in our lives now in everyday life. Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and he literally, the Bible says, is inside of us through the Holy Spirit. The power and the profound implications of the resurrection are accessible to us now in Jesus. Jesus is telling us to tap into that and to live the resurrection now, not later. Okay, so then, what does does that look like? Okay, what does resurrection living actually look like? In real life? Well, this is what it looks like. You know, during the Roman Empire, uh, when they had those really nasty plagues, right, you guys read in high school history, right? While everyone else was fleeing, running away from the urban areas for fear of catching the plague, guess what Christians were doing? They were running toward the sick toward those urban areas see instead of running away from danger they ran toward it even at cost to their own lives so that they could embrace and care for the sick in fact christians in the roman empire showed such radical mercy to the poor and sick and marginalized that it actually got the attention of the emperor emperor julian wrote this in an actual letter complaining about christians he writes this next slide the impious galileans as christians support not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid, even from us. That's resurrection living. Rather than being controlled by the fear of death, they were controlled by the security they knew they had in Jesus and the resurrection. You know, I'm sure that many of them were very afraid of the plague, but they refused to let death dictate how they lived their lives. Instead, the north star that guided their lives was Jesus and the resurrection. Just as Jesus ran toward them and died for them and gave them hope, they chose to do the same. They ran toward the sick at profound cost to themselves, and they did so with confidence because they knew their resurrection destiny. That is true freedom. That is how you live the resurrection now. That is how the resurrection impacts now. I mean, think about how amazing that is. These Christians were so not controlled by the fear of death that they actually invited more death into their lives so that others could have life. These Christians could literally die to themselves and not be afraid of losing out because they knew what they had in Jesus. Uh, John Wesley, you guys might know him, he's uh, a famous English evangelist, right? In 1731, uh, he made a decision, a conscious decision, to start limiting his spending so that he could actually give more money to the poor, okay? And so the first year that he started this, his income was about 30 pounds, okay? His expenses that year were 28 pounds, so he gave away two pounds that year. The second year, his income doubled, uh, but he didn't increase his spending, so he gave away 32 pounds the second year. And in the third year, his income was 90 pounds, but he still lived on 28. So he gave away 62 pounds that year. And then in year four, his income was 120 pounds, and he still managed to keep his expenses at 28 pounds. So that year, he gave away 92 pounds. He actually continued this practice throughout the rest of his life. In fact, one of those years, he earned over 1,400 pounds. That year, guess how many pounds he lived on? 30, two more, right? So he gave the rest away. Now this baffled, this behavior baffled people. In fact, in 1776, the English Tax Commission, they were reviewing the records, and they just could not believe that Wesley was spending so little when he was making so much. And so they actually wrote him a letter, and this is what they wrote. They said, we cannot doubt, but you have plate for which you have hitherto neglected to make an entry. Let me translate that for you. Okay, basically they're saying you must have silverware or something somewhere that you haven't reported to avoid paying taxes. That's what they said, because this is unusual behavior. People do not do this. But John Wesley, he wrote back, I have two silver spoons at London and two at Bristol. This is all the plate I have at present, and I shall not buy any more while so many around me want bread. You know, John Wesley From what I know of him, he didn't hate life. He enjoyed relationships. He had a full life. But he lived fully because he didn't let the forces of death dictate the terms of his living. He led Jesus. And because he was so unafraid of losing out because of how much he had in Jesus, he could literally give away so much so that others could have life. That's resurrection living. That's living living without letting the forces of death and fear diminish your living. Just two more stories and I'm done for today. Tim Keller, uh, you guys all know him. I love him. Um, I don't believe everything he believes, but you know. Anyway, so Tim Keller, he tells a story uh, of uh, a a media executive and he had somebody who was underneath him and she had made a huge mistake in her job and she should have gotten fired. Like They wanted to ax her. Uh, but this media executive actually came to her defense, and while they were having a meeting discussing what to do with her, he was in that meeting, and he said, look, it's not her fault. It was my fault. I should have trained her. I threw her into this a little bit too quickly. Let me take the hit, okay? Let's give her another chance. Uh, he had enough capital to do that. I mean, after this, his reputation suffered, actually, okay? But he said, you know what? It's not her fault. Let me, okay, it's on me. And so she found out about this, that he, he, he took the hit for her, and she actually said, that's weird. So she went into his office, and she, she said, why did you do that? And he's like, oh, it's okay, don't worry about it. You know, just keep doing your thing, do a little bit better, you'll be fine. But she said, no, 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 no. I need to know why you did that, because I've worked for a long time, never did any of my bosses, right? Never did they uh, take the blame for anything I've done. They always took the credit. And so she was baffled by this. She's like, I don't understand. And he's like, don't worry about it. Just, you know, go do your thing. And then she kept persisting. And finally, he said, look, you're not leaving me alone, so I'm going to tell you. The reason why I did it is because I'm a Christian. And Jesus took the hit for me. And because he did that for me, I live doing that for others because that's what I believe he wants me to do. Right? And when she heard that, she went to his church. Now, we don't know if she became a believer or anything like that. But you see that? That's resurrection living. Rather than running the rat race and looking out for his own neck because he was afraid of losing out, rather than be controlled by the forces of death, he was free to live as a redemptive force in this world and in that woman's life because of the life he knew that he had in Jesus Christ. Okay, last story, Rob Reamer. Uh, he, Rob Reamer is actually a guy that we know. He spoke at one of our retreats. Very trustworthy guy, very humble guy. Um, and uh, we have some people actually taking a, a course uh, with him right now. Uh, so the th- story I'm about to tell you, this really happened. This is not something I'm pulling out of my butt, right? This, this is really true, okay? So one day he was teaching uh, in one of his classes about demonic oppression, right? Uh, at the end of that class, uh, he actually asked if anybody wanted prayer, uh, so some people stood up and wanted prayer. Uh, and when they stood up and uh, he started praying for them, he st- the first thing he said was, come, Holy Spirit. And he said, come, Father, Holy Spirit, come, right? At that moment, Rob Reamer and the other witnesses in the class said one of the students flew through the air four feet up above the ground for about 20 feet and then landed in front of a student named Kevin Walker. Everybody, including Rob Reamer, was shocked, Right, if I saw this happening, I would run out of the sanctuary and go home. Right. So Rob Reamer, he turns to Kevin and says, "You can cast that one out." And Kevin, just being a student, all the color drained from his face. Uh, but Rob Reamer walked him through it, and eventually they freed that student from that oppression. You see, rather than flinching literally in the face of a death of of a deadly force. In Jesus, these believers could stare death in the face with courage and authority, okay, and authority that only comes from the one who is the resurrection and the life. If you have Jesus in your life, death and the forces of death do not have the last say in your life, and you also can live with this kind of power and authority and freedom.